for a number of years now, we've been um, using our fifth Sunday that is in one particular month as a time for us to do things a little bit different. And so we preach up front, uh, we gather around the text, we try to look at what the Bible is going to teach, and uh, um, the beauty of it is time and time and time again, um, it lines up really, really well with some kind of an idea or thought uh, that ends with us eating together and drinking together uh, in memory of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And so I love that. Um, love hearing stories about like what Paul and Jim were just sharing a few moments ago. Uh, a couple of days ago, I woke up in Bogota, which is always a strange statement, right? Because I've never been there before. So it's like, yeah, woke up in Bogota. And it's crazy the time that we live, is it not? It's just amazing how quickly we can get to different parts of the world. And I love the reminder that Jim was sharing this morning, which is not only that we are called to go, and our text is going to kind of describe that. We are called to go. We're called to make a difference. And I've always been concerned that I do not want my children to see, and I do not want even my friends to see, that the world becomes this incredible vacation spot. Right? That's how a lot of people treat it, right? What's the world? It's places where I go on vacation. It's for me to enjoy. And I'm afraid to get to heaven and to meet somebody, and they say, hey, where are you from? And uh, they say, I'm from Columbia. And I say, oh, yeah, I used to go down on vacation there. Where, where were you? Oh, I grew up in the slums. And oh, yeah, no, I didn't do anything to help you. But man, I'll tell you, you got some great resorts. And by the way, I'm not against vacation. I'm not against taking in the beautiful parts of the world and seeing how wonderful they are. But let's, let's as followers of Christ, let's have a different attitude about the world that we live in, the world that we've been called to to be a part of, let's go and enjoy the splendor, to enjoy, really, to enjoy, and then also to recognize the responsibility that God has given us. You get it? You understand what I'm coming from on this? And then, then we can actually, I think, enjoy our vacations, and I, I love the fact that, I hope someday, actually, I mean, I, I love to go on mission trips, so one day, hey, my wife and I can come back here and either do a mission trip or actually take in that resort, because that's a sweet place to hang out by the beach. And by the way, while we're on that, then maybe we could actually go down and check out this church because they're doing an amazing ministry to try to end poverty for these children. Why is it always one or the other? That's not my sermon, but I, I believe that very strongly, by the way. My sermon um, is from Matthew chapter 22. If you don't mind turning there, Matthew chapter 22, we're starting a section that is going to sound like the previous sections. Um... The Bible comes to us really not asking us what we want, but giving us what we need. And it's not the first time that I've looked at a text and thought, oh, I, I feel like I've talked about this before. No, it happens quite regularly. I remember a number of years ago, I was in 2 Corinthians. I had never preached through that book entirely before. And Paul's writing to a church, and they have problems. And so Paul refers to them over and over and over again. Like, here's a problem that you have, and here's some things that you need to do. And he just keeps saying it over and over again. I get an email from a well-intended, and I get where he was coming from, frustrated member of our church who said, I, um, I hope you take this in the right way, um, which I, always, I, usually, I usually do, okay? I hope you take this in the right way. I'm not trying to be a complainer. Okay, I get that. But I'm just so tired of hearing these same ne negative critiques every Sunday. And I just remember thinking, okay, I mean, because I first thing when I ever hear something like that, okay, okay, is it true? Number one is not how dare you. It's number one, is it true? And so I began to, and I began to look through the Corinthian material and I was going, but it's the Bible. I don't know how to, I don't know how to, hey guys, good news. Paul told us that we should, you know, I mean, it's just, no, sometimes it's just difficult, difficult, difficult. And we're in kind of one of those sections actually in Matthew 21. 
And it continues on, 23 and 24. There's some harsh judgment sections. And today I'm going to be talking about, it's, it's a parable about the kingdom of God where God tries to invite the Jewish people and they reject him. And you go, wasn't that last week's message? Yeah. Wasn't it the week before? Uh-huh. Didn't we also? Yeah. But think about this. Matthew decided for some reason when he was writing this letter originally, this book, this gospel, when he was writing this good news, he was writing it to a church and he knew they needed it. Okay? And I, I think it's good for us to say, listen, like, you know, Jim, when you're preaching, please try to add some new stuff occasionally. But by adding new stuff, I can't change what's been given, or at least I shouldn't. And if I do, then I'll, I'll, I'll face the judgment for that. But we are going to be dealing with a text that rings very similarly to some previous parables. And so we're going to be hitting this. If you look at verse 1, um, I want to talk about one more parable. And Matthew's gospel, probably more than any others, has like the, no, it does. It has the most parables over and over and over again. Chapter 13, completely devoted. Um, in these final chapters, tons of parables about the kingdom of God and what is going on. And for some reason, Jesus felt like I need to say this over and over. Matthew felt like I need to record this over and over. Verse one begins like this. And again, <laughs> see, so even Matthew gets it. I'm gonna tell you again another story that Jesus told his audience because they needed to hear it. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, the kingdom of heaven, so that's going to be what we're talking about today, the kingdom of heaven, which is God's reign on the earth. It's, it's bigger than the church, but I think it includes the church, but God's reign and God's purposes, I think it's good for us to always remember, extends farther than what I think or than what you think. God's not, God's not answering to anybody. He is answering to himself. And this is his kingdom. This is his reign. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. So we've got a king, God. We've got a wedding feast, which is a, an image that was, was strongly used during this time period to, ref, to, to describe that time when the Messiah would come, that God would come and he would bring this time, like a, a wedding kind of a time, this new era, this new, uh, this new messianic, right? This new following of the Messiah, the promised one of God. And they're excited about that. And he says, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to this, this incredible wedding feast. We all understand the expectations and the joy and the new life that come from this time period. And it says in verse three, and he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But the people that he'd been invited, the people that had decided to pay no attention it actually says, because um, they wouldn't come, but they paid no attention. And they went off because they were busy people, right? Like they got lives to live. And man, you just can't always go to church. So they went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest. So no, notice the two responses, right? Some said, I'm just too busy. Like I go off to work, I go off, right? They're not, they don't seem to be angry. They're not mad. They're just not interested. It's one group. But he continues on. But the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them, which we've seen in previous parables about the kingdom. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Now, that's obviously pretty intense. Luke has a very similar parable to this. I would even say the, the same parable. 
that is being told. And, and Luke um, re- removes some of these. We don't know, we can talk about the reason why, but Luke's version of the story is not quite as strong in judgment as this is. Maybe because Matthew's audience is, is far more Jewish in its original setting, and he's letting them hear the original words of Jesus Christ, not, offering, not only offering hope and this incredible feast, this invitation to be part of the Messianic world, but also judgment at its refusal. Whereas Luke's writing to a Roman centurion, and it's clearly more on the invitation side. But notice what he says. He, he destroys those murderers, and he burned their city, but he's not done inviting and then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready. I love this idea. Like, it's, we're having a feast. Like, the feast is not determined by the number of people who show up. It's going to happen. And I've sent invitations, and then I sent more invitations. I sent people, I sent out more people. There's constant rejection, but it's going to happen. I love this. Go out and find those, um, sorry, but the wedding feast is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go, therefore. Have you heard that before, that statement? Go, therefore, Jesus says here in the parable, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and they gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. The the wedding hall was filled with guests. Um, I love the, the, the challenge of this parable that's going to come down to us is not whether or not God is inviting, gracious, uh, kind. No, no, he clearly is. The, the, the question is not, is there going to be this day of not just judgment, but of celebration? No, there is. The question that this text fo- kind of forces you and I to ask is not, will there be? but will I be there? Do you see the difference? It's not will there be, it's will I be there. The invitations are going out. There is going to be a celebration. I I, I get it, I understand uh, that right now, I don't know if you guys can sense it, but I can just sense some some tension in the the air in our country and around the world. Anybody else can sense that? I thought it might just be me. I can, I can really sense it, though, quite a bit. And what's, what's amazing is, is that it's, it's causing a lot of not just cynicism or skepticism, but downright almost like a, a, a pessimism, like a hopelessness. Now, now, the good news is, for those of us that have Jesus, we understand how all of this is going to work out. Okay, we get it. We understand the, the complexity of our times. We understand the, uh, those people who are looking for answers in places that don't have Jesus are never going to find the full answer. So it begins to make sense to us, but what concerns me is when Christian people begin to look at the world and it begins to kind of go in a direction that they're not comfortable with, and they begin to wonder, oh man, I don't, I, it just feels like everything is just going, I mean, it's just going, it's just going to hell, it's just, it's an absolute mess, what are we going to do? And it's this hopelessness that, to be honest with you, like, I don't get. I get where it comes from, I, I get the complexity of looking at the difficulty of my day, of my time, of my era, of my generation, of my situation, I get that. But God's word comes in, and what does it do in that moment? Does God's word reorient you as you look at the circumstances? And so many people, I can tell by their, 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 by their, by their tweets, or I can tell by their Facebook page, I can tell like whether or not they're buying the world's narrative or God's ultimate plan of redemption and restoration. Because we all agree that there's a, fa- a fallenness that exists in this world. 
The question is, do you believe that one day there's going to be a wedding feast? It's why I've never understood why, why preachers, although I probably have said this a couple of times, I go off on this part quite regularly, and today is a text where I get to say it again. I don't understand the statement ever spoken by a Christian leader who says, the church is one generation away from extinction. Now, what they're, you know what they're trying to say, right? That if we don't share our faith, if we don't, if we don't pass it on to the next generation, the church will cease to exist. I get what they're saying. And I do, I look at the numbers and they talk about declining attendance in the church. And I, I, I wonder, I mean, I'm thinking through the process. I'm trying to ask questions and how can we be more faithful? I get all of that. But can I ask a question, Mr. Preacher Boy? Like, didn't Jesus say that on the truth of who he is, the Christ, the son of the living God, that, didn't he say something about, and I will build my church and the gates of death, Hades particularly, will not overcome it? Didn't he say that? So how is the church one generation away from extinction? Actually, let me tell you, the church isn't just okay in the world. The church is fine, absolutely fine. It's magnificent. It is advancing. It is doing some incredible work. I went to Bogota, you heard of it? Troubled place. And I was in an area where we had to go during a particular time of day in a kind of another city, Cartagena. And when we went there, we went during a certain time of day because of the gang violence that existed. Literally behind our bus, there was a knife fight. Okay? That's the place that we lived. And, and yet, I walked into a church with kids singing and dancing. And I asked them, how's it going around here? Oh, it's, we're just fine. Okay, you do know where you are, right? You're in Colombia. Oh yeah, we're doing great. We're doing just great. We're putting an end to poverty. See these kids here? We are changing our community. Okay, don't you know things are bad in Colombia? I had to remind them how bad things were. I told them, you should see my Facebook page. It is full of panic and scared them. I mean, that you need to understand how bad it is. Don't you know you don't have resources? Don't you know you don't have? They actually believe they're making a difference and it's only because they're making an incredible difference. Now hear me, that's not like, that's not good marketing. That's biblical truth. Do you understand the difference? I'm not trying to just talk hopefully into their world. I'm speaking truth which brings hope into their world. Or actually, me looking at their world brought hope for me. I thought, wow, like if these people in, in Bogota and Cartagena, um, these churches are thriving. Thriving read a fascinating article in the last few days describing that, by the way, the church in the world is not in the decline. You need to separate it, and it fits well with this text. You need to separate the two groups. There are those who choose Christ, who choose Christ, okay, who literally have to make a decision. They have to decide whether or not they choose to live for Christ, whether or not they, they, they decide, it's almost like Jesus speaking, that if you want to be my disciple, that you must daily pick up your cross and follow me. You must choose to do this. And with those followers around the world, the church is growing. It's not declining, actually. People coming to Christ, sacrificing for Christ, dying in his name, sacrificing for his name, planting churches across the world, that is thriving. You know where it's dying? This is the word in the article, inherited faith. Now, what do they mean by inherited faith? Okay, because I've got boys, and I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, and we could say they inherited my faith. I mean, I'm a follower of 
Jesus and my parents really were the first in our families to choose Jesus. Did I inherit it or did I choose it? Well, I'm grateful for that inheritance. I'm not talking about it like that, but I chose it. My wife and I chose it. I mean, I wanted to make sure that my boys chose it. I had to remind them, hey, I know you're 16 and you're going out with your friends tonight. Are you ready to follow Jesus? Like tonight while you're out, like while you're doing whatever it is that you're gonna do, you're a follower of Jesus, right? And they looked at me and every time said, oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Now sometimes they failed, let's be honest, okay? But you, they get that, that, did you choose? Did you choose? And where it's inherited, when, when I ask a question, hey, are you a follower of Jesus Christ? My mom goes to the Baptist church in Texas. Okay, good for your mom. Um, are you a follower of Jesus Christ? My grandpa, my grandpappy, he, he, he founded that church. Great for your grandpappy. I want to ask you, are you a follower of Jesus Christ? Where the church is truly declining is in what we would call inherited faith. Where you haven't asked the question, do I choose to follow Jesus Christ today? Do I choose to sacrifice for him today? For those of you that have done that, that's where it is actually growing and thriving. For those of you that are trying to live off someone else's faith, let's not be surprised. It's not working out for you, is it? It's just not working out, is it? Like your parents' convictions, as sweet and as kind and as memorable and as nostalgic as they may be, doesn't cut it with your questions, does it? And that's why actually the Bible teaches that each of us, each of us can be blessed or we could deal with the complexities of our troubled heritage, but Christ comes to each of us with this incredible invitation, I'm having a banquet. It's gonna happen. You wanna come? So notice the wedding hall is filled, so I promise you there will be a day, I've seen it in Revelation 7, there's gonna be this incredible day, and at that banquet feast, there's gonna be people of every tribe, nation, language. I always feel like I'll be the Canadian representative because I think there'll be like five of us there, you know? And so I'm excited about that. I think it's gonna be great. I, I hear my wife might be coming, and so it's gonna be an awesome opportunity. Just kidding, babe, you're gonna be there, right? Okay. <laughs> you should see our house Sunday afternoons. It's wild. Okay, verse 11, it continues. But when the king came to look in on the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. Now, by the way, um, for those of you that complained about, I had to buy all of the, or I had to you know, rent all of the tuxedos and pay for it. I had to buy all the, the, the dresses for the girls in, in my daughter's wedding, my son's wedding or whatever. Listen, like that is, that's true in our culture, but in this original culture, it wasn't uncommon um, for those who would have been invited to this to be given actually wedding clothes to come in. So it's, it's not, I mean, it's strange to us. I mean, you don't buy everybody's clothes. But in this culture, it, it actually makes a little more sense. So guy, some person comes in, he's not wearing the right clothes, which means he really wasn't part of it. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without wedding garment? He was speechless. And then the king said to the attendants, and this is where it gets rough again. Bind him, foot, hand and foot, and cast him out into the outer darkness. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Many are called, but few are chosen. And without getting into the complexities of this, and then I know theologically this could go in a number of different directions, this text isn't here to design kind of a, a, a system of thinking regarding God's ultimate knowledge of our decisions that we make and all of that plays out in our free will. That's really not what this text is designed. Um, that's a great theological conversation, but this text is not describing that. This text is trying to emphasize the difference between the many who are called and the few who come. The many who are called and the few who come. 
And even those who come, notice this, and this happens actually in Matthew's gospel a number of times, and we're gonna see it again here in a little bit, is that people don't get what really the basis of that relationship is on. And what Matthew is emphasizing and what Jesus is describing is that the emphasis comes down to the relationship that you have with God through his invitation through Jesus Christ. Listening to him, following him, obeying him, joyfully serving him, like that becomes the dividing line between those who are on the inside enjoying a feast and those who are on the outside. And notice the text, no, 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 no description of fire and burning for eternity. But this, it does describe darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know, there's a lot of questions about what hell will be like, and I think, um, I think we don't know. I, I think what we do know is that it is an eternal separation from God. And I don't think anyone in the world, no matter how difficult their circumstances are, understand what complete separation from God and his favor and his kindness really looks like. This is one of my favorite pictures of it, because I don't know if the fire, you know, that's kind of a picture that we have. That's not the issue. That almost most consistently it's described as a weeping and a gnashing of teeth. Now, when we think of gnashing of teeth, most of us just think of like, ah, ow, that hurts, ow, that hurts. That's really not what it's really describing here. Well, how, tell me what happens when you find out you made a really bad mistake. How many of you go, oh? How many of you know that, ah? Oh. That's what it is. I can't believe I didn't go. I can't believe I missed that. The gnashing of teeth so much isn't out of pain. I'm not saying there won't be pain there. But it is that eternal regret. That eternal, I missed it. That eternal, why didn't I? I know what it's like. Any of you guys have any regret in your life? You know what I'd do over? Think about the ultimate rejection of God's invitation to a feast, an eternal feast. And eternally going, why did I do that? Why did I choose to separate myself from him? And Jesus points out, because many are called, but few are chosen. Now, it's these four things that I want us to, to see in this parable as we begin to apply them to our own lives to understand ultimately like who God is and, and what this is all about. And the first one is this. I, I, want you to, um, I want you to recognize and at least to be honest with yourself because you probably have ideas about God, particularly about the reward of heaven and the judgment of those who do not. We've got lots of questions about that. Is that fair and why and on what basis? But before we answer those questions, which many of them actually stand a little bit outside of the scope of this text, there's one thing that this text definitely wants, Matthew wants his audience to know, Jesus wants his audience to know is this, the persistent invitation of God. Notice what the text says. He sent his servants, and then he sent other servants, and then he finally said, go everywhere and invite everybody. Like he's constantly sending. He's constantly inviting. If I were to ask you, and I do this quite a bit, right? Raise your hand if, I doubt if, I doubt if, I doubt if you would, but I wanna ask you a question. Um, if I were to say, how many of you have not heard of God's invitation of his grace? How many of you have not heard about how God loves you and he cares for you and he wants, he wants to have a relationship with you through Jesus Christ? He wants to give you peace. 
He, he wants you to recognize like who he is, his love for you and his plan and his purpose for you. If I were to say, who's not heard that? Who's going, what is this God of which you speak and this Jesus of which you proclaim? No, you've heard it, right? How many of you have heard it a lot? How many of you have heard of God's amazing invitation, I don't know, five times in your life? 20 times? 100 times? 200 times? 300 times? 400 times? 500 times? <laughs> and, and by the way, that's not true everywhere. I know, brings up more questions, but it's not true everywhere, but it is true for you. The character of God is one who persistently invites, what does the text say? Bad and good. <laughs> what is God's character and his nature? Is to throw a party to invite and then 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 invite and being rejected and then inviting and then getting rejected and then inviting. How many of you, if you kept planning a party and people kept rejecting, would at some point in time go, you know what, I can't do this again? How many of you would give up? Right? Not God. Not God. Like, do you realize how important it is that you know that truth about him? He is a persistent inviter to this feast. So before we ever get to judgment, notice that this text doesn't focus on God's gonna get you. No, actually, no, that's coming up. But it is invitation after invitation after invitation. The persistent invitation of God defines his character. Everybody wants to come up with an excuse as to why they don't believe because it's not intellectually real because the church has got some problems with it. Okay, whatever you need to come up with, and by the way, there are legitimate reasons that we might work through. But in the end, for so many of us, it is just one reason to refuse after another. What are we refusing? The incredible invitation of God. And yet, once again, just in case you've never heard this before, God invites you to this eternal banquet. Now, we also see this, the persistent refusal of his people. God makes Adam and Eve, and what do they do? There's just two of them, 100% rejection off the bat. But they have children, it'll change there. One kills the other one. Now we're down to one, and he's a bad guy. And God persists. You have a mixture of good and bad, and by Genesis 6, you have Noah and his family, and everyone else is bad. Complete rejection. And this just goes on and on and on. Sun goes up, sun goes down, sun goes up, sun goes down. The one thing that is probably more consistent than the rising and the setting of the sun is the absolute persistent rejection of God's plan and purpose for the world. Now, we'd much rather rebel against him and violate and exploit one another. We would much rather try to build our small little sandcastles, call them kingdoms, for ourselves and reject God's plan and purpose. And in the midst of that, God continues to invite and they continue to reject God calls himself for a people. He pulls them up out of Egypt. And what do they do? Over time, they reject him. So he sends them prophets. What do they do? They kill them. Like, this, is a story, this parable is a story of the Bible. The persistent rejection. And I say that to you because not only is it good for you to understand and to appreciate God's patient kindness with you and then with everyone, 
But don't be surprised when people that you love and people that you care for and people that you're loving and people that you're sharing the gospel with, like don't be, oh, can you believe it? They've rejected them. No, actually the surprise comes when they accept. Just read the parables. Found the coin. It's not, oh yeah, I knew I'd find the coin. No, there's like shock and celebration. When the prodigal comes home, the prodigal came home, because why? Because most prodigals don't come home. You know that, right? Most prodigals don't come home. The road to God, narrow. To destruction, to the absence of God, to the removal of God, that is wide. These are biblical ideas. The persistent rejection, and, and by the way, maybe you are, could do a better job sharing your testimony, sharing the, the testimony of what Christ has done for you and for the world, for God's purposes, for God's glory. Sure, maybe you need to work on some things and, and be a nicer person. I, I get all of that. We should all work on how we can become more like Jesus to share Jesus. But they rejected Jesus. Recently, just as in this past election, my brother-in-law, who's Canadian, an unbeliever, he's Canadian, um, was just, you know, just in advance panicking about the election results. And he kept writing me about how it was probably the end of the world, we're all gonna die, okay? Because he thought Trump would win. So that's kind of where he was coming from. Thought it was the end of the world. And I thought, okay, instead of getting into a political debate with him, I'm just gonna share the hope that I have in Christ. And I just kept sharing that with him. Well, you know what, I get it, and I understand like, why you're worried and blah, 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 blah. But the truth is, I just don't put my hope in there. I put my hope here. Put my hope there. And, and finally, he wrote me in the last one. He said, listen, Jim, I've always been amazed at the faith that you and Andrea have. Um, but I, ha- I must admit, I'll never forget this, but I must admit, it still eludes me. He's a bright guy. And when I tell him about this incredible invitation, you know what he says? I'm busy. I don't have time for that. Persistent refusal. And I don't go, what's wrong with God? Why isn't he? No, I read this parable and it, it makes sense. There is something within us that is persistent. But let me hear me, hear me, let me, hear me on this. You know why I don't give up on my brother-in-law? Because God hasn't. Okay? I'm not gonna, because God's still inviting him. So guess what I'm doing? Inviting him. Next thing that we actually see, and this is one of those things that can be difficult for many of us, but describe it as the justifiable judgment of God. The justifiable judgment of God. Again, this is probably, Matthew is not describing this to try to give up a reason. It would have been very easy for his audience to believe, yeah, this righteous God can do whatever this righteous God wants to do. Um, In our day and age, we're clearly superior to these ancients, and we clearly are far more compassionate and loving and caring than these ancients. And so we um, get deeply offended at the judgment of the creator of the universe on his creation for their rebellion against him. Okay, that's more of a, it truly is, it truly is. It is far more of a modern phenomenon. I'm not saying nobody experienced it, but it was kind of, no, I mean, if he's the king, he gets to decide what he wants. If he's the God, he gets to decide what he wants. For us, it has truly disturbed our, our, our modern sensitivities. But the text comes to us and it just says, listen, if God really is a king, which you have to believe, and if he really has been this gracious and this kind, and these people have completely abandoned and rejected him, let me say it to, to, to you this way. I'm not saying, you know, I believe it's justifiable. God doesn't reject people. God rejects those who've already rejected him. That's what's happened here. It's not God rejecting people. It's God rejecting those who've already chose to reject him. If anything, what we actually see in this is that God's saying, a life without me, if that's what you want, this is what it looks like. The problem is on this side of eternity, we have no idea what that means. 
So for those of you that are playing around with that, that are postponing that, and you think you get it, you think you understand it, oh, you know what, what's an eternity without God? It can't be that bad. <laughs> you, have, you have no idea. And by the way, like if I didn't have this book, I'd have no idea. If I was just left to watch on like the Discovery Channel to figure it out, I'd probably think like the world does. If I was getting all of my information from just like, you know, Facebook, like I get why I would have like all these crazy ideas that there's an energy force in the universe and God will be sweet and kind. I get all that. I get why Oprah ends up with her conclusion or Rob Bell. I totally get it. Now, this book kind of causes a problem in my thinking. This book cuts against the grain of our modern sensitivities with the reality, the ultimate reality of God, who, by the way, is primarily gracious and kind, long-suffering and inviting, and at the end is justifiable in his, this is what life without me looks like, and if this is what you've chose, scholars will describe it as God being a, a gentleman, giving you what you, des- what, what you want, you, just, you have no idea. For those of you that are still playing around with this game, you have no idea of the eternal consequences of your decision. Now, if you look in your bulletin, I don't know if you are, but if you look on your bulletin, I need to change something because I, on my flight from Bogota to Houston, God said something to me. So if you look on your bulletin, it actually says, in, in line of, um, it talks about the justifiable judgment of God, and then right beneath it, it should actually say, and the gracious gift to his people, the justifiable judgment and the gracious gift. That's usually, that's what I was thinking on Monday. But as I was just going over this sermon and going over this sermon and going over this sermon, as I'm flying back, I just like, no, no, no. It's not the justifiable judgment and the gracious gift. I want want you to scratch out on that bulletin the word gracious. And by the way, it is gracious, so I'm not going against that, okay? But I want to change the word to this the justifiable gift to his people. I don't know if I've ever talked about God's grace ever as justifiable. The justifiable gift, meaning can I justify this gift? And one of the reasons why I I, I used to like gracious more than justifiable was because from my perspective, I don't deserve it. Like I'm broken. I'm one of the bad guys that gets in. So it's a gracious gift. And I always look at it at the cross and what God has done from my perspective as one of those people who didn't get the first invitation and man, I'm just grateful that you came back for me and that I get to eat here. Like God, thank you for opening this up and me being a part of this. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. It is a gracious gift that I don't deserve. And God goes, I know. Like I've seen all that you've done. I know how terrible your heart is. But from God's perspective, he says this. But from my perspective, Like, it is justifiable for me because I bought you. Have you ever thought about that? It is justifiable from his end because God's not overlooking our sin. He purchased us. He justified us in Jesus Christ. So from that perspective, from God's divine perspective, what we actually see is God saying, you don't understand, I have made this incredible feast and the people who are going to come here are going to come here in a justified way, in a justifiable way. Why? Because my invitation through Jesus Christ makes them that way. So listen, it'll always be gracious and amazing and crazy and just wow, But when I look at us from God's perspective, 
like it truly is justified based on his love, based on his plan, based on his purpose. Have you ever looked at it from God's side? Wow. That's how the book of Revelation describes it, this incredible feast that Jesus Christ has purchased for God through his own blood. It just changes everything. And that's why I can understand why this justifiable gift to his people has this statement attached to it. Go therefore to the main roads and then invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out to the roads. They gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. I love that. Go therefore, he says. Go therefore. If I, if I just say that statement, hey, go therefore. Where, where do you guys go? Can I tell you where I go? Matthew 28. I don't go to this one, I go to another one. Go, therefore, we see in Matthew 28, and make disciples of all nations. Did you know that that's not the first time the go, therefore, is actually mentioned in the Matthew gospel? It's a parallel verse. Go, therefore, to all nations and baptize them. By the way, that's why I went to Columbia. And it's, it's why I go across the street. It's, it's why I look at my life and I realize, wow, if I've been invited to this, I need to share this. If you have received an invitation, I don't know how you handle wedding invitations, but have you ever like got this and you get this wedding invitation at home, you're like, honey, who are these people? Oh, don't you remember? We, this is Dave and Sue from college and then it was their daughter, second cousin, sister's friend. And so they invited you and they're like, are we going? Yeah, I don't know if I wanna go. Like, are we going? And we try to find a reason why not to go. Well, they're gonna find out we're not there. I don't even know if we know us anymore. Yeah, do, do I throw it away or do I put it on the fridge, right? Is that what you do at the save the date? Do I throw it away or do I put it on the fridge? Listen. The invitation that we're seeing here is far more valuable, far more critical, far more important. And as I said, the question is not, the question is not, are you invited? No, I'm telling you right now. How many of you, how many of you heard my sermon today? Raise your hand if you heard it. Did you get a sense of an invitation? So you know you're invited. The question is whether or not you accept that incredible invitation. It still stands. And so now we gather around this table. And, and what we're going to do, um, unless this is your first Sunday here, you've probably seen this before, um, we gather together and we come forward in groups and we uh, sing songs. And you will take over the next, what, four or five songs that we're singing? Four songs? Four songs? Um, you'll be able to worship God and to reflect on what he has done for us in Christ, the invitation that he has given you. And then you get to reflect on whether or not you've actually accepted that invitation by faith. And then when you have, you get to come to a preview of the great feast that he has prepared for us. Is that not amazing? So let us reflect well. Let us eat and drink well, celebrating what God has done for us.